Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday, and here we are talking once again about Brilliant Beacons, a history of the American Lighthouse, but we are getting closer to the end, which is not always a bad thing, but yet we have accomplished so much, and in these last couple of episodes for Brilliant Beacons, we're going to learn um, more information that... Um, holds ever so true to why our brilliant beacons have a um, profound lasting legacy for our nation. When you think about it, um, when Congress passed the Lighthouse Act of 1789, and here we are in the year 2021, that means, folks, that our lighthouses have been around for 232 years. Of course, lighthouses have probably been around longer than 232 years. After all, we delved early on into um, history from years before, back in uh, the time of B.C., when the first um, Greek lighthouse was uh, established during that period. But at the same time, uh, moving forward into the 18th century, the first lighthouse was constructed in 1715 in Massachusetts, so, in a sense, uh, the federal government took over the role of um, being in control of lighthouses starting in 1789, but lighthouses themselves have been around for just over 300 years. So, while it seems like a long time, in reality it doesn't, but yet these brilliant beacons have proven the test of time that they are um, resilient through the best and worst of times. What could we be discussing tonight that hasn't been discussed? Well, from the previous podcast, we talked about the lighthouse keepers and their lives, but we're going to talk more. But what we're going to talk about here is about lighthouse heroes. Well, heroes. When I think of that word, hero, um, I think of uh, people. But it is fair to say that even structures themselves can serve as heroes because it's the structures themselves that save people's lives. Think about it. It's not just confined to one structure. Structures in general are very um, essential when it comes to facing a natural disaster where seeking shelter can mean the difference between life and death. So in this podcast episode, we're going to discuss the light, the the men and women who became lighthouse heroes when it mattered more than anything else. And believe it or not, uh, one of those people will be a, a woman that um, many of us probably did not know about. But I learned about her when I read the book a few years ago and learned more about her when rereading this book. And her name was Ida. Her real name was Ida Wally Zoradea Lewis, but she went by Ida. But we'll get to her story here shortly. But what makes her unique is that she is one of the 140 women who um, became head lighthouse keepers during that period from 1776 to 1839, a period of 163 years. So our first question to lead off will be the following. Besides tending to lighthouse along with maintaining its fog signal, what other essential duty was required of lighthouse keepers to perform at any given time? 
provide assistance to people in wrecks, including situations involving life and death. After all, you know, a lighthouse, a lighthouse hero just doesn't earn the name of being a hero overnight. He or she has to perform multiple acts of, uh, what do you call it, of uh, heroism that, um, that does involve putting their life on the line to ensure that the people, that is everyday people, their lives are safe, not only at sea, but their lives are just, are safe in general, you know, freely uh, navigating the waters, you know. Yes, not everyone who whose life is in danger is a uh, mariner, but even ordinary everyday people who think they are um, out in a safe part of the water only to encounter danger at any given moment where life and death hangs in the balance. Like firefighters themselves whom saved countless lives, light keepers too went above and beyond the call of duty. So here we go with uh, Ida Lewis. She is the daughter of uh, Captain Hosea Lewis and Ida Wally Zoradia Willie. I know that's a very that's a tongue twister of a name right there, but um, while Ida's real name was Ida Wally, uh, she preferred to go by Ida to avoid uh, confusion, given that her mother had the same name. Well, where did the Lewis family live? They lived up north. They lived in uh, New England. They lived in Rhode Island. Her father, in the year 1853, was appointed keeper of the Lime Rock Lighthouse in Newport, Rhode Island. Now, when I think of Newport, I think of uh, the mansions along the coast that um, were home to many well-to-do people whom lived the high life during the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age really was that era between 1870 and 1915, leading up to World War One, when the United States got involved. So, the lighthouse that uh, the Lewis family had, being Lime Rock, was about 200 yards from the shore in Newport, in Newport Harbor. It was known locally as Lime Rock, since there were no... Um, known locally as Lime Rock, since there were no keepers' quarters, Captain Lewis, believe it or not, commuted to work daily by boat with daughter Ida by his side. Well, I always, I thought there that, um, that people had keepers' quarters. I thought that was a given, that there was, you know, proper lodging where the family didn't have to worry about leaving the station for the day and only to come back to the mainland, only to have to do the same thing over the next day. Well, it turns out that um, during this time, even right after the Lighthouse Board itself is established, they're, they're still in the works of um, building keepers' quarters at various uh, lighthouse homes up and down the East Coast, as well as eventually into the uh, West Coast as uh, westward expansion really um makes its uh, name known. So, how do the Lewises survive for the next uh, couple of years? Well, for, well, there is good news to report four years later in 1857, the Lighthouse Board constructed a lantern room along with a two-story granite and brick house that allowed for better accommodations 
especially for Captain Lewis. After all, his uh, health uh, had taken a real toll with all the traveling that he had to do back and forth. I mean, the man wasn't out of shape, but just the constant the constant uh, goings of having to go back and forth from mainland to the lighthouse without those permanent quarters, I could see how that really did take a, um, a tough toll on the man. So, sadly, to make matters worse, in October of 1857, even after these accommodations had been made, Captain Lewis suffered a bad stroke, which left him partially paralyzed, and he was unable to perform duties. So, who steps into play? Ida. By this time, she is age, she is a she's 15 years of age, and she goes about taking on duties. Duties that, yes, would be involved at the lighthouse quarters, but how about other duties that will um, be of essential use, such as ferrying her two younger siblings to school via boat, along with doing supply runs to and from town. You know, supply runs, that is to get the essential necessities, uh, whether it's food, um, to um, lighting equipment, anything that would be of use for the uh, lighthouse, not just short-term, but long-term. But her first true test is going to come a year later in September of 1858, where at the age of 16, she will, um, she will have her work cut out for her, and she will be ready for the challenge. But at age 16, isn't it fair to say, though, that most children that age should not have to be worried about uncertainties like this? Well, you would think so, but remember, life isn't always fair. And children at a young age in this day and time are prone not only to, you know, maybe getting sick themselves, but are prone to losing a parent at a young age, or let alone both parents. And it's bad enough that Ida's father has suffered a stroke, but at the same time, I Ida's got to step up to the plate and help out. So, in September of 1858, young Ida Lewis spotted four boys in a boat near Lime Rock. They're having fun. You know, hey, they're having fun like young boys would want to have fun. You know, they're not, obviously these boys, I'm not going to say that they're bad individuals. They probably don't know as much about the water or what's below like Ida does. In other words, they don't probably have the same knowledge of what's lurking around them. You know, yes, they may see the lighthouse, but they probably are under the assumption that, oh, the lighthouse is there to ensure that ships don't run aground or, or nothing goes wrong with them. But they really don't know what else is going on. While they're having fun, the weather does rapidly change for the worse. One of the four boys is playing with the ship's mast, and he's engaging in a prank. He begins rocking the mast back and forth, and in the end, this prank backfires, not just on the boy, but the crew, or let alone the, the group of boys themselves. The boat capsizes, and it sends all four of them into the water. 
Now, let's keep in mind, folks, when we go in, if we fall out of a boat and into the water, that doesn't automatically mean we're just going to be able to uh, get right back up into the boat and uh, pretend as though nothing happened. Is it fair to say that maybe, just maybe, where these boys fell out of the boat and into the water, they were in some uh, what you call rough terrain below where, say, an undertow could have taken them under and drowned them? Absolutely. So Ida, given what she has just seen now, she gets into her skiff immediately. And if those of you who aren't familiar with what a skiff is, it's a small boat with a flat with a flat bottom and a pointed front, it's used for shallower waters. Shallow meaning narrow, uh, it's not deep. Of course, where the deep end is where it's um, very deep to where it would be say to say it would be safe to dive in an area where you know that you're not going to uh, hurt yourself. I think we should all know that uh, diving in the shallow end is not, especially at a swimming pool, for example, is not a safe thing to do because that could result in injuries that um, are uh, life-altering, devastating, and in some instances can result in death. So Ida is very calm. She knows that she has a mission to fulfill. She's got to save these four boys' lives. She does see them flailing. She sees them screaming. I, I, you almost have to wonder, do any of them know how to swim? And we have to remember, folks, I mean, it would be easy to think, okay, you know, you're a young boy or a young girl, you would think that he or she knows how to swim. Not necessarily. So, Ida's got to stay calm, and she is calm even as she's getting closer to the boys. But she remembered her dad's teachings as she went about pulling each boy out of the water one by one. In other words, she remembered everything her dad instructed her on what to do if in the event an emergency arose where one or more people's lives were at stake out on the water. So when she pulled out each boy one by one safely, she returned them to the lighthouse where they would all make a full recovery. And these four young boys, they did express their sincere thanks. Hopefully they learned their lesson especially that you are not to be playing with the ship's mast. In other words, yes, you can fix it if need be, but you don't need to be rocking it back and forth to where a prank will backfire. Because who's to say if these four boys did something like that again that they may not be so fortunate the next go-around. By early 1869, 11 years later, Ida Lewis has earned a reputation. She has saved nine people's lives over an 11-year span. So early 1869, she's now about 27 years of age. And in case, you know, yes, as I mentioned earlier, her father had suffered a stroke. He is still living, as well as her mother. But in March of 1869, that is when national fame that is when she will attain national fame amongst the general public. How does she attain the national fame? Well, one evening in March of 1869, a boat had capsized halfway between the Lime Rock Lighthouse and Goat Island, where two soldiers from nearby Fort Adams were fighting for their lives by clinging to the boat's hull. It turns out that a 
a youngster who was from the area, long story short, had uh, told the gentleman that he would be able to gear them to safety. Well, he tried, but he lost his battle in the end to where he drowned and never um, reemerged up, never, uh, his body never was discovered. Very tragic. But yet it's a miracle at the same time that these two soldiers are still clinging on to dear life, given that they are clinging to the boat's hull. Ida Lewis once again comes to the scene, but what's different about this one is that compared to the one 11 years earlier, this time Ida is fighting a cold. It's bad enough that she's fighting a cold, but she but she knows that time is really not on her side with the, especially given the circumstances that are at, that are at hand here. So she decides, "Hey, I'm not going to put on the shoes or the coat." But I but her brother accompanies her on the mission. And the two of them go out into the waters to assist with hauling the men to safety. While the men were saved, this was, the mission was made difficult by the fact by the fact that there were white cap waves. What are white cap waves? They are waves blown by the wind. And these waves were so strong that they nearly took out Ida's skiff. As for both men, or I should say the soldiers, they stayed overnight. And what do you know? The next day after, both men make a solid recovery. And Ida herself still mustered enough energy to row them back to Fort Adams. And yet she wasn't feeling 100% well, but yet she still mustered enough energy to do it. I hope that these uh, two soldiers thanked her. I'm sure they probably were stunned by the fact that a woman had saved their lives because I think it's still fair to say, folks, that even in the post-Civil War era and even before then, I do believe that many men were convinced, and they probably had a right to be on one hand, that the vast majority, or if in fact all lighthouse keepers were men, Little did these two soldiers know that there had been a fair number of lighthouse keepers before 1869 whom, in fact, were women. And they probably didn't know that a majority of women also were lighthouse assistant keepers. So, how does um, Ida Lewis's heroism emerge? Well, not long after the incident, this particular incident happened in March of 1869, a month later, a gentleman from the New York Tribune came to interview her, and her heroism was first published in the New York Tribune on April 12th of 1869. The men whose lives were saved, that is, the men from Fort Adams whose lives were saved, were a part of a, uh, they were part of a large group of um, men from Fort Adams, being that of the Fort Adams staff. They raised $218. Well, that doesn't seem like a lot, but $218 was a lot of money back then because all that money went towards giving Ida a gold pocket watch. Now, isn't that just absolutely nice? 
you know, there again, folks, $218 doesn't seem like a lot, but it is fair to say that not everyone can afford a gold pocket watch. But to come up with $218, that's a lot of sacrifice right there. And for these two men whose lives were saved, um, kudos to them for realizing that, hey, we need to do something for this woman. She sacrificed so much to ensure that our lives were spared, that we could still do what we wanted to do in terms of what our interests were, but how about serving our country? So it's not just saving the ordinary, everyday people out at sea, folks. How about saving men's lives whom are fighting, whom are protecting our freedoms, not just abroad, but how about at home? Now, of course, in 1869, we're not quite yet a world superpower. We've got about another 30 years to go before we attain that uh, status, especially when we're um, drawn into the conflict of what would become the Spanish-American War. But it is fair to say that the military now is really seeing just how vital of a role female lighthouse keepers play because they're not afraid to take on a challenge, even if it means coming out and performing the act of uh, heroism even when they're not feeling their best, like Ida was uh, that night in um, March of 1869. Ida Lewis did go on to receive other gifts, ranging from a Rhode Island state resolution recognizing her heroism to July 4th of 1869, where the Rhode Island State Legislature officially declared that day as Ida Lewis Day, the same day as Independence Day. It was on Ida Lewis Day where in front of 4,000 people she received a brand new rowboat. And what do you know, folks? It was named the Rescue. What a fitting title. After all, Ida um, has saved over 10 people's lives probably by now, and her career would continue to last until the early 20th century, where she probably might have saved overall in the end about maybe close to 20 people's lives or just right over. I don't know if it was just 20, but it was close enough to it. And the state legislature didn't fund any of the money. Uh, it's not that they didn't want to, but the public was willing to raise the money to... Um, ensure, or I should say the people of Rhode Island raised the money to ensure that Ida Lewis got a uh, brand new rowboat, being that of the rescue. Um, Ida Lewis, uh, from what I read in Brilliant Beacons, uh, she died in, in 1911 at the age of 69. You know, 69 may not seem like an old age, but, um, but in 1911 that probably was. Ida Lewis um, truly is a hero. She's a pioneer of her time. She even met um, women's rights advocate leaders like uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, whom uh, spearheaded the women's uh, suffrage movement. Ida uh, died nine years before women finally won the right to vote. But she was a trailblazer for her time and must not be forgotten. Let's learn about another fellow person whom most of us probably would not know of. And that's okay, because sometimes the most unsung of heroes often have the best stories to tell. I think we found that to be the case with Ida Lewis. We'll find um, 
this to be true with a fellow named Marcus Hanna. So who is exactly Marcus Hanna? Well, he is a lighthouse keeper whom followed in his grandfather and father's footsteps. He is best remembered for a rescue where Mother Nature's presence stood the test of time. So, where is where does Marcus Hanna um, reside in terms of being a lighthouse keeper? Is it up north or up south? The answer is up north. Okay, well, how do we define north here? I mean, we could say Great Lakes. We could say New England. Well, the answer is New Eng the New England region. Is he a lighthouse keeper from the state of Maine, Massachusetts, or Connecticut? The answer is Maine. He is um, Cape. He is the um, lighthouse keeper to um, Cape Elizabeth. And how ironic that uh, my wife and I, when we went to Maine seven years ago, we actually got to visit. Um, the Cape Elizabeth Lighthouse. We didn't get to go inside it, but we saw it nearby. We, not to get off track here or anything, obviously this would not have been around when Marcus Hanna was there, although I think he would be happy to know that, for one, the Cape Elizabeth Lighthouse is still standing there, but two, uh, there is a lobster shack eatery that overlooks the coast of Maine, which is, um, or the Atlantic Ocean, rather, but it's called the, lob the Lobster Shack at Two Lights. So not only do you get a good view of the, of the coast or the Atlantic Ocean while having a lobster roll, you get a great view of um, the Cape Elizabeth um, Lighthouse. But anyways, back to our um, primary focal point here. Marcus Hanna was Cape Elizabeth, was the lighthouse keeper to Cape Elizabeth. He was on, while on duty... He was on duty running the uh, fog signal between midnight and 6 a.m. for uh, January 29th of 1885. To be up for six hours, that's a long time. But if it makes you all feel any better, he does have a, an assistant who will relieve him. While all that seems good, the weather conditions outside are the opposite. They are really, really bad. The day before, being the 28th, weather conditions had started out at being 4 degrees above zero. And if you don't think that's cold enough, as the day got worse, the temperature dropped to 10 below zero. So the ship at stake was a schooner known as the Australia. The Australia was comprised of a captain and two crewmen. Their um, mission was to uh, leave out of uh, Portland Harbor to deliver assorted cargo to Boston. The Australia and her crew endured multiple wraths. What were some of these wraths? How about ranging from gusty winds that damaged key components like a mainsail which is either the largest or the lowermost sail on a ship, to waves breaking over the ship's side above the upper deck, including flooding the hold where the cargo was storaged. Talk about being really, um, what do you call it? I don't think arrogance the right word or ignorant is. I mean, it is fair to say that many of uh, ships uh, sailed the, the waters 
on especially along the Atlantic Ocean or in the um or in different uh, channels of water that um, met up with the Atlantic Ocean during the winter months. But they were um but the men who performed these missions while some survived, others didn't. It was very um, dangerous, to say the least. Now, Captain J.W. Lewis, whom is Australia's captain, he had originally sought shelter in Portland Harbor, Maine, 10 miles northwest of Cape Elizabeth. But instead, through the advice of his two-man crew below him, he decided to ride out the storm offshore where elements of Mother Nature kicked in full force. You know, yes, just because you're offshore, you may not think that uh, you could endure the brunt of a storm, but no matter where you go when Mother Nature isn't acting the way you want her to, Mother Nature will behave whatever way she wants, and she will throw curveballs at you, especially curveballs that you don't have control over, whether it where it truly does come down to life and death um, situations. Pardon me if I had a little stutter there, folks. Trying to get the right words out is important. Throughout the night, especially into the hours after midnight, on January 29th of 1885, Captain Lewis and the crew of the Australia tried unsuccessfully, unsuccessfully, that is, folks, to sail the ship around the Cape Elizabeth, Due to the wind and waves being so fierce that Australia slammed into the rocks near Cape Elizabeth Lighthouse. You know, slamming into the rocks, that might as well be like the equivalent of um, a car collision head-on to where a car could be completely totaled to where it's no longer salvageable. So we forward to 8.40 a.m. on uh, January 29th. Mr. Hanna is sleeping away before he's ready to uh, get on with the second shift of his uh, come later that morning or early afternoon. But Mrs. Hanna, Marcus's wife, and a longtime assistant keeper, she, well, she is a longtime assistant keeper herself, she was the one that spotted the Australia located ashore near the fog signal. She uh, wakens her husband up, and she also notifies the second assistant keeper, being Hiram Staples. The two of them get their clothes on, and they embark on the frigid weather outside. I mean, it still is below zero, folks. I mean, this is... Um, this is where I can say survival of the fittest ought to rightfully come into play. Marcus Hanna and Hiram Staples found, found surviving two crewmen clinging for dear life. Captain Lewis perished. So, what did Marcus Hanna and his second assistant keeper, being Hiram Staples, attempt to do to save the surviving two crewmen? They went into their um, storage room and got a piece of metal. They tied the piece of metal to the end of a rope, and, and they sought to toss out this rope to where the two crewmen could access it and bring themselves to shore. 
How many times do you think Marcus Hanna and his assistant crewman tossed this uh, piece of metal tied to the end of a rope? How many times do you think? The number is between 10 and 20. Believe it or not, it was there were 20 attempts. Every toss, being 20 attempts, landed 10 feet short. So, they had to come up with a different uh, game plan. And that game plan was to um, was for Mr. Hanna to um, eventually have to wade himself into the frigid water. And by wading himself into the frigid water and throwing the rope, the greater the likelihood that it would hit its mark. But before that happened, while trying to remove ice from the rope, because the rope itself was on the brink of becoming frozen to where if nothing was done, then what use would it have been for the two, for the two crewmen fighting for their lives? But while Marcus Hanna is removing the ice from the rope, an impressive wave lifted the Australia, throwing it closer to shore. A powerful wave, folks, bringing that boat even closer to shore. This is what will allow Marcus Hanna to go into the frigid water, throw the rope where it does, in fact, hit its mark. Hanna tied the rope to where both men were saved one by one from the frigid waters. And it is, is it fair to say, folks, that these men are facing conditions like hypothermia to becoming blind from the exposure to cold for each man. In other words, you're enduring hypothermia. You run the risk of becoming blind from the ex from exposure to cold. From it does. I mean, we must keep in mind too that the average person, if 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 one falls through the ice, for example, you really don't have a whole lot of time for survival. You might only have three to five minutes at best to stay afloat before you could uh, perish due to hypothermia or um, succumbing to um, other, um, what do you call it, um, like frostbite or any other um, elements that can uh, take over your ability to, um, to proper, to functionally, pro uh, what do you call it, to um, properly function in a matter of, uh, in a time of crisis. Well, the mission was a success, but it almost resulted in a loss of life. Had uh, Mr. Had it really was an act of God, that, in my opinion, that these two men survived in large part because of what the um, of what the waves themselves did. Had it not been for these uh, waves that came in and um, brought the ship closer to the uh, shoreline, these two men might have died. Marcus Hanna himself could have lost his life as well. And in the end, a large-scale wave destroyed what was left of the Australia. So, if Marcus Hanna was not out there when he was, it is fair to say that this ship would have destroyed with both crewmen losing their, both surviving crewmen losing their lives as well. The force of this wave was so destructful that the coast was left behind with scattered debris everywhere. And let me ask you this, folks. When these two men were brought into the lighthouse, 
their clothes were stripped. I'm not trying to sound graphic, folks, but if you're suffering from hypothermia, frostbite, um, to running the risk of becoming blind, don't you need to be um, wrapped in warm blankets? Don't you need to be um, wrapped in anything that's warm that would, um, we call it, slow down the... Um, the frigidity that you've endured, I don't even know if frigidity is the right word, but to, but to um, reduce the, um, the tension that your body has endured, not only externally from outside, but internally on the inside. And because it was such a bad snowstorm that it took two days for the roads to be cleared, not just the roads, but any access from the roads from the mainland to the lighthouse to where um, medics could come and take these two men to the hospital. These two men survived, thanks to Marcus Hanna's heroism as well as that of the uh, second um, assistant keeper being Hiram Staples. Marcus Hanna, three months later, on April 29th of 1885, the government awarded him a gold life-saving medal for his heroic deeds. It turns out that he, um, long story short, served in the Civil War. And of course, he served on the side of the Union. And he also performed heroic deeds in the same manner like he did in 1885. And what makes this so unique is that he became the only person in the U.S. in U.S. history to have won Congressional and Gold Life-Saving Medals. I tell you, folks, these are the unsung heroes these are everyday people who sadly have been forgotten, but I do believe it's fair to say that um, many lighthouse uh, historical societies have not forgotten who these people are, and we should remember them. After all, they um, probably, we know Ida Lewis saved many people's lives. We know Marcus Hanna probably did too, but the bottom line is, this was part of their job, but it was also at the same time a job where even the, the lighthouse keepers themselves, like Ida Lewis and Marcus Hanna, they, knew, they always knew that there was either a 50% chance that they would uh, bring home a survivor or, that, or there was a 50% chance that they may not even survive themselves trying to rescue those in danger. Which uh, lighthouse in the Gulf of Mexico, now we're moving to different regions, folks. So we've talked about the New England region. Now we're going to uh, take a um, unique um, directional shift and go south to the Gulf of Mexico. What lighthouse in the Gulf of Mexico served as an emergency, as an emergency shelter more than once on the national scale? The Bolivar Point Lighthouse, located in Galveston, Texas. I had mentioned this lighthouse to you all from an earlier podcast. And this lighthouse itself was built um, in the late 1840s, uh, a few years after um, Texas became a state. Galveston um, had really become one of Texas's uh, leading uh, port cities, where ships were coming in and out with goods, and Galveston, um, Galveston's port was um, had been vital for many years. And what many people don't know is that Galveston 
at the turn of the 20th century was in fact I do want to say that it might have been the richest um, city in America and how I know that is because there was a documentary on the History Channel that talked about the infamous 1900 hurricane at Galveston, Texas on September 8th of that year and then we'll talk briefly later on about um, the hurricane of August 16th, 1915 but it was these two um, situations or incidents where the Boulevard Point Lighthouse became a savior to those whom were seeking safety. How about shelter, higher ground? The Boulevard Lighthouse was rebuilt in 1872, seven years after the Civil War ended. The height of the um, lighthouse, or in terms of how tall it, it was, the new lighthouse rose 117 feet above sea level and it was made of cast iron shell and brick line and it had brick lined interior well you know i think it's a good thing that perhaps this lighthouse got rebuilt when it did especially uh when it comes to uh taking on mother nature of course we all know that yes you can have all the most uh, up-to-date, sophisticated, uh, state-of-the-art technology. You can have, for example, earthquake-resistant buildings that can, say, withstand a, a magnitude 6.0, but sometimes that doesn't always automatically guarantee that the building itself will still be uh, standing even after a massive earthquake. Well, what about the case with the lighthouse? Well, we're going to find out some interesting things here. On September 8, 1900, Harry Claiborne, whom was the headkeeper of the Bolivar Lighthouse, welcomed over a hundred refugees. In other words, these refugees had nowhere else to go. They knew if they stayed in their homes that they probably wouldn't uh, survive. After all, pretty much all of Galveston's homes were built of wood. And wood doesn't seem to do very well in natural disasters especially if a lightning strike occurred. Your whole house would go up in fire, up in flames. It's a good thing that, that lighthouses now aren't made from wood. It's a good thing that lighthouses are made from many uh, unique, um, what do you call it, um, materials. But it, it's not just that, but how about the fact that this lighthouse is 117 feet above sea level? If it's that high, if that's if that lighthouse is that high above sea level, there's a good chance that it's going to perhaps withstand a, a major hurricane storm. So, Mr. Claiborne is very gracious enough to where he has welcomed over a hundred um, refugees. Of course, I'm sure we're all wondering how in the world can you fit over a hundred refugees in your lighthouse? Well, he's he if he found a way to make it happen more power to him. However, a quarter of a mile away from the lighthouse, there's um, a situation that's really um, unfolding and turning for the, for the worse. A train from Beaumont, and if any of you aren't familiar where Beaumont is, uh, the only reason I know about Beaumont is because it's located outside of Houston. A train from Beaumont is moving slowly over flooded tracks. Okay, it's bad enough that this train is moving over flooded tracks, only to be, 
inundated by flooding waters coming from the opposite direction. So there's a big panic on the train. Ten passengers get off. They see the lighthouse. They know where to go. Sadly, folks, 85 other people on the train still remain put, thinking that they will be safer in the train than they possibly could be in a lighthouse. The ten passengers who got off that train became the last people to enter Bolivar Lighthouse on September 8th of 1900. The Galveston storm, or the hurricane, had sustained winds of 130 miles per hour, with gusts as high as 200 miles an hour. Nearly 6,000 lives were lost. That's even more than Hurricane Katrina. That's more than any of the uh, modern-day hurricanes that we have seen in the last uh, 12 to 15 years that have inflicted such uh, massive damage. Of course, there was no such thing as a sapphire scale in 1900. That wouldn't be introduced until the early 1960s. But scientists know that, or meteorologists now know, that um, that the Galveston hurricane would have been a Category 4 on the sapphire scale. 6,000 lives lost, folks. That's, uh, that's just beyond... Um, it's almost like reading a book, a fictional book. But it did happen. It still remains today as the worst natural disaster in American history. And all 85 people who remained on that train from Beaumont, whom stayed aboard, they all perished. Let's forward to 15 years later, August 16th, 1915. Harry Claiborne once again opened the lighthouse to 60 people whom sought refuge from the hurricane, from a hurricane striking the coast. I think it's fair to say, folks, that Harry Claiborne had become a savior in terms of a savior. Well, Marcus Hanna was a savior when it came to a, um, a nat not just so much a natural disaster, but a... Um, an event where Mother Nature, um, Mother Nature was at her uh, mightiest in the winter. Harry Claiborne had became a savior, really, in in hurricane season, by saving well over hundreds of lives in times where life and death hung in the balance. What can we say about these brilliant beacons, folks? Our lighthouses. Not just the structure standing there, but how about the people whom were manning them? The brilliant beacons, besides shining their lights, had also become shelters to everyday people in times of despair. So, there we have it, folks. Brilliant beacons do so much more than just get lit at night to, in to ensure that ships are coming through the waters safe and sound. They are serving as a place where people can come to stay. Because if, if the brilliant beacons aren't open, then where else would they go? If Mr. Claiborne had not opened them up to people, hundreds of other fatalities would have been um, recorded, especially in 1900. Yes, if there were those who survived, which there were survivors in 1900, which was great, 
I don't know if any other lighthouses along the Galveston coast did save anybody else's life. I'm sure there were, but most notably it was Harry Claiborne to the rescue. We have a lot to be thankful for with uh, Ida um, Lewis, with Marcus Hanna, and Harry Claiborne. They are just three of countless lighthouse keepers whom went above and beyond the call of duty to save people's lives. But without them, many, many innocent lives would have been lost. So when we see lighthouses, let's always be remindful of whom lived in them. Let's be remindful of the sacrifices those families made. Let's be remindful that that even though um, lighthouses are automated now, let's remember, folks, that even people who lived there years ago um, were up at all hours of the night, making sure that the rest of us were safe. Let's be reminded of the fact that they did more than just lit and unlit the lighthouse. Let's be reminded of the fact that they, that at any moment's notice when they saw trouble, they were the first to, um, they were the first to be on, to be what we know as call of duty. After all, folks, they didn't have a telephone to say mayday, mayday. We need a, um, a helicopter to rec rescue these four boys. No, it's our duty. We've got to go out there and save them. So after all, folks, these individuals, they're like their own military personnel. They are their own um, police officers. They are everyday heroes who, in many ways, inspired America. Just like when I watch the news, there's always the Inspiring America segment. I think it's about time we give that same title to the Lighthouse Keepers. They inspired America by going out there and doing things that others couldn't do. It takes special people to put their own lives on the line so that the rest of us not only can live in freedom, but that the rest of us can live freely from harm's way by navigating the waters safe and sound. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and I look forward to being back on the air again next and when I am on the air again next, folks, it will be our last uh, podcast episode of Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse. I've really enjoyed this one, but even after this one is done, there will still be more fun stuff that lies ahead. Take care and stay safe. <laughs>